This is the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Now please welcome your host, Ed McKnight. Hello and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight, and I'm here in the studio today with James Shaw, who is co-leader of the Greens Party. James, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And James, whenever we start these, I always feel like the first thing people want to know is is who you are, what you stand for, you know, a little bit about your background. So I'd love to hear um, just a little bit about the young James Shaw or how you got into politics. Yeah, sure. Well, I, uh, like a lot of Kiwis, after I left university, I ended up in London. Uh, I was only supposed to be there for about 18 months. I was on an internship at Pricewaterhouse, which shortly after I got there became PricewaterhouseCoopers, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And I, uh, through a very weird set of um, circumstances, ended up working for the global chairman on uh, what is the sustainable, how does the sustainable development agenda affect a big professional services firm like PwC? Uh, and that that was really how I, I kind of got into um, sustainable business um, strategy and facilitation uh, and and so on, and and change management. And so that was really what my career was about. When I about kind of four four or five years into it, I kind of came to the conclusion that uh, we weren't going to be able to change the world at quite the scale or the speed that was required, especially when it comes to climate change. And so while there was a lot of good work that was going on in the world of business, and I was doing some pretty exciting work with my clients, um, I felt the need to kind of scale up. And that was really what led me towards politics because there are really some things that will only happen as a result of political change. And did you get straight into it? Or, but there, there was sort of a roundabout way you got into politics potentially? Oh, everything's roundabout. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Because I, I actually first joined the Green Party in 1990 when I was 16, straight out of high school, 17 or something like that, um, which was the first year that the Greens contested a general election. And I'd been quite involved for a couple of years and then, you know, went to university and got busy doing mm-hmm. other things and sort of dropped out and then went overseas. So I was doing my master's degree at Bath University School of Management um, over in the UK and that was when I kind of made that decision to come back into it and f- and I graduated with my MSc in 2005 and then from that point on really started to lay the groundwork so I set up the London branch of the New Zealand Green Party in 2007 and stood as a list candidate based in London uh, in 2008 so I know that kind of sounds weird, but it does. Well, there's tens of thousands of Kiwis living in London, right? Okay. Um, and so my job really was—I was about number thirty-eight on the list. I was right at the back of the bus, right? Nobody had any idea who I who I was, but it was kind of newsworthy that we had a candidate based in London. And um, so did the other, so the Labour Party, by the way. Her, her name was Jacinda Ardern. You may have heard of her. Um, and uh, oh, about, never. About halfway through that campaign, um, the, the Labour Party list came out, and she went, "Oh." Crikey, I'm about to get elected and um, packed her bags and headed home. So uh, so we had a great time campaigning in London because where do you find concentrations of Kiwis in London? Uh, pubs. Bingo. So we spent about six months going to the pub. Who you just into together? Well, uh, occasionally, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, yo, we'd run into each other, we'd have the same. Every time Fat Freddy's drop or the Black Seeds came through town, <laughs> uh, you know, there'd be this lineup with 500 Kiwis outside the Shepherd's Bush walkabout. Um, and we'd head down there with our clipboards and our stickers and uh, and get people registered to vote. 
No way. I kind of like that because it speaks to the whole um, Kiwi Expat Association thing that there are about, a, is it, am I right in saying about a million Kiwis who live overseas? Yeah, look, there's actually no hard data. We've actually got no idea. Um, the numbers range between a quarter of a million to a million. Yeah, because the thing is that people um, uh, go native, right? So we know in, in London, for example, the, the, the range of Kiwis that they said were living in London were anywhere between 60,000 and a quarter of a million. Um, but the thing is that people kind of go into the woodwork and, you know, get married and have kids and so on and so forth. And then the question is, well, you know, at what point do they, you know, stop being Kiwis in that in that sense? Uh, and so, you know, our it's kind of it's a funny group to try and market to when you're trying to get them to vote because Mm -hmm. a lot of people say well I don't feel like I have the right to vote because I don't live there or I don't pay tax there at the moment or you know those kinds of things and then a lot of people sort of say of course you know I I hope to go home uh, at some point and I want the country to be in kind of better shape when I get home than when I left it all of that kind of thing so yeah it's it's really ambiguous how how many there are yeah and I I I kind of feel a similar thing because I I am legally about to become an Irish citizen um, which would entitle me to vote um, well it's a good time to become an Irish citizen it really is um, yeah. but because it's still in the EU yeah my, my British passport's degrading in value rapidly yeah, yeah as soon as I saw Brexit I thought well I'm going to go sign up for my <laughs> Irish citizenship now um, but it's kind of similar because I don't feel like I, I'm not abreast of all the issues mm. and so I almost don't feel like I have the right to vote but then again so many um, of New Zealand's young people also feel the same about New Zealand politics if they're not following it closely. And so they kind of have the, the this kind of, they get into the situation where it's like, well, how much do I need to know before before I can vote? Yeah, the, look, this is true. I, and I've met immigrants to New Zealand uh, who have been here for, you know, 10, 15 years who say that they don't feel that they can vote yet because they still don't feel like they're sufficiently integrated into society or they don't know enough about it. The thing is that there's like a lot of people who vote who know less than you do about mm. what's going on in politics, right? So I, I just figured, look, everybody's entitled to vote. Um, if if you're the kind of person who thinks deeply enough about it that you aren't even sure if you know enough, then I would say that's probably quite a good qualification, actually, um, and, and that you should just... Uh, you know, vote with your values. Yeah, I was going to say there. I'm sure there'd be um, many uninformed voters precisely who, who who just go to the go to the ballot anyway and um, go for it. Absolutely. Yeah, and and can I ask you, the, the Greens is all about sustainable business, and I mentioned before we got on that that um, I had Gareth Morgan in the studio this morning, and, to, and he had a question for you, which was all about with at what point would uh, would the Green Party partner with National, or under what circumstances could the Greens work with um, the National side? Well, in government, that is, yeah. because I know you have at the moment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we've always tried to have as constructive a relationship with all parties in Parliament as we can. Um, but yeah, for us to support a, a, a you know, a, a national government, I think would require a, a pretty substantial rethink in the way that they do policy. I, I mean, a lot of people say this to me, um, that it's some kind of transactional relationship. But uh, one of our... I mean, I guess our central point is that actually that the National Party's approach to managing the agenda inherently uh, trends towards unsustainability, you know, in ter- you know, in terms of the environmental impact uh, and, and, in fact, in some ways, the social impact of, of, their, of their policies. And so I guess my beef, you know, because I know there's a lot of committed environmentalists in, in, the, in the National Caucus, right, and they've got this 
big group called the Blue Greens, um, mm-hmm. and they've been pushing the environmental agenda. The problem is, is that their their way, their fundamental way of thinking about it is this idea of a balance between the economy and the environment, as if they are somehow trade offs of each other. And if they want to grow the economy, then that style of thinking automatically leads to some level of degradation in the environment. And so they're always trying to mitigate that. Our view is that it's actually it's it's not that these two things are somehow separate from each other or that they have to be balanced or traded off against each other, but in fact they are each a multiplier of each other, right? So that when you really focus on restoring and enhancing the natural environment, then that becomes uh, a you know a critical asset for the world of business, right? So if you look at some of the complaints that the tourism industry has had recently about the state of our rivers, that actually the damage to New Zealand's reputation and you know in terms of what's going on in that in that department is making it difficult for them to continue to sell the. 100% pure NZ uh, tourism proposition overseas. At the same time, you know, I, I know, I mean, I'll give you the example I use of, of Zilong Tea, right? Who sell tea to China, which itself is a pretty <laughs> remarkable proposition, uh, for a colossal sum of money, right? Small runs, high-end, organic product grown in New Zealand soil with New Zealand air and, and water and so on. And yet th- the risk to their value proposition every time there's a food scare or you know whenever stories get out about the state of our rivers or the fact that our greenhouse gas emissions have been going up that actually undermines their ability to continue charging a premium uh, and so yeah so essentially we've got a fundamentally different way of of looking at the economy as a driver of environmental outcomes and vice versa mm, so so i suppose your um your challenge there is that um it's just this fundamental approach to the economy and and uh, how it relates back to uh, sorry to the environment fundamental approach to the environment and um, and to some degree the economy and how yeah. they relate to one another. Yeah, that's right. That's and, right. And you've mentioned Zealong because I I hear this idea that um, um, that it's not a trade off all the time and um, Zealong's a great example. Do you have any other examples of where um, we, where we have the environment really benefiting business and, and vice versa rather than this trade off like we have in dairy? Yeah, well, I mean, I talked about the tourism industry where. It, you mm-hmm. You know, one of the um, proposals that we put out recently was the idea of, of you know, charging uh, tourists at the border, mm. um, just a, a small levy, which would uh, at least in part go towards, um, you know, saving New Zealand's native birds and so on. Because when it comes to tourism, the environment is critical infrastructure. And you take away the environment, we don't have much of a tourism proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like a whole, uh, there's a whole industry there. Something like 80% of tourists who come to New Zealand visit the natural environment in some way and about just about five out of every eight of those go to the Department of Conservation Estate. So it's a colossal, colossal asset for us. Um, I mean, other other examples, I often talk about uh, um, Interface Carpets who are an Atlanta, Georgia-based billion-dollar um, carpet manufacturing company who about 25 years ago really got into the sustainable um, development proposition and have they, they at the time they were about half a billion dollars in sales and that, so they've literally doubled in size over the course of the last 20 years and a lot of that has been because they started to shift away from petroleum nylon carpet and into renewables like you know wool and wood and bamboo and, and so on but also bringing down the greenhouse gas emissions cleaning up their factories you know all of that kind of stuff so that when when a when another business is buying in carpet and they're starting to think about you know, their own kind of reputation, their supply chain, then Interface was way out ahead of the crowd 
uh, on that and and so have become you know that's kind of the core of their brand uh, and and it's driven massive sales off the back of that Fantastic, fantastic. And I'd always be remiss if not to mention a friend of the show, Adriana Christie, who runs the Pellet Kingdom, where it's taking essentially pellets that would be scrapped and thrown into the landfill. Um, we actually had her on a, a, an earlier political episode um, and upcycles them and sells them for, for I think, not enough money, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, yeah, look, upcycling is really starting to take hold. And a lot of that is that thinking about, um, you know, waste as a, as a, as a stream of, of value. Uh, so to return to the interface example, they've got a business in the Philippines uh, where divers go out and collect ghost fish nets off the ocean floor. So, you know, Filipino um, mm-hmm. fishermen are generally one person in a small boat with one of those handheld nylon nets. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those nets go over the side of the boat and they, you know, they're lost to the ocean floor. And in fact, over the, over the last few decades, so many of these what they call ghost nets have built up on the ocean floor that it's clogging the uh, the fisheries and destroying the reefs. And so they've got divers who are going down there, collecting up these ghost nets, cleaning them, bagging them, and sending them off to Interface to get made into petroleum nylon carpet, right? And Interface buys them off the off the fisher off the divers at a commercial rate. So it actually, it's actually worth their while because this is pre-processed nylon, mm-hmm. um, and and you know it doesn't take them that much work to then turn that into carpet. So it's so that's you know waste lying around on the bottom of the ocean floor where it's causing huge amounts of environmental damage. Mm-hmm. That when somebody thinks about it, it's like actually I could use that, you know, and 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 then they pay a commercial rate for it, and so it starts a business that you know, takes waste and turns it into value. So it's essentially, I mean, it, you know, n- not just looking at the, the environmental um, benefits of it, but from from the business perspective, you're like, hey, the, here, are, here are resources yeah. which are relatively valuable but are free if we just go and get them. Pretty much. You know, and yeah. and I, I, that's where I kind of see, yeah, the, the clear overlap between business and the environment because you can, you're essentially cleaning up, taking resources that are worth nothing, selling them to somebody else is a little bit of arbitrage yeah. um, and, and it's a decent business model. Yeah, precisely. So it'd be great um, to have to have more thinking like this. And is that the kind of thing that the Akina Foundation, which you were mentioning before you you had previously worked for, is that the, the, those are the types of ventures that you're looking to fund? Yeah, that's right. Akina uh, was a foundation. It used to be known as the Hikorangi Foundation. So it, it had you know um, a bit of history there as well. What it, what that organisation essentially does is it's like a an accelerator program for social enterprise, and the notion of social enterprise is simply taking commercial business models and applying them to a social and or environmental problem, and saying, well, how how can I use a commercial business model to fix this problem? So it's a more sustainable, in many ways, it's a more economically sustainable model of organization uh, than just like a pure charity where you're reliant on some form of donor base mm. to be able to carry out the work um, because you've essentially built a, a self-sustaining business model around the nature of that challenge. Mm, and there are many other problems with, uh, well, I, I personally think with the charity model where because no, but there's no incentive to, to grow and to adapt, then you're not necessarily always getting the best outcomes. Like there's no impetus to drive forward as there is in business. Well, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I mean, I, I think charities have a very important role uh, in the country and there's a lot of work that has to be done that would not get done if it wasn't for the charitable sector. And we've got a pretty thriving charitable sector here in, here in New Zealand. Um, and in, the, in reverse, you know, the, the, you know, business has an inherent 
uh, kind of requirement to stay afloat. You know, you've you've got to make sure that you're at least um, able to keep your nose clean and 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 your head above water to mix a bunch of metaphors, um, and that's kind of useful. But of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're automatically doing any kind of social or environmental good. It just you know, so I think that's why I like the social enterprise model because it blends those, it blends the best of those two things and brings them together. Fantastic. And look, just to move on to, I, I suppose, the, the purpose of the podcast or the core purpose, because I always get chatting, uh, which is asking about your three top priorities and how they directly impact New Zealand's young professionals. I mean, what would you say is your top priority? Well, uh, I mean, at this election, you're going to see us talking a lot about water um, and uh uh, by that I mean, uh, you know, cleaning up our rivers, which is obviously a, a thing that we've campaigned on for a long time and is becoming more and more and more important. But also in places like Auckland, water infrastructure, because it's pretty clear that we have a problem with drinking water, especially after the Havelock North outbreak last year. Um, but obviously every time it rains heavily in Auckland, uh, then you've got just huge amounts of raw sewage that go out to sea because we've got these really old creaking um, pipes and so on. The next thing we're going to talk about is ensuring that um, families have got enough to make ends meet um, because while the economy is growing uh, and incomes have been rising, things like the housing crisis uh, and the fact that you know certain living costs have risen faster than many people's ability to, to meet them means that in some cases people's real incomes have actually gone backwards Uh, and then the third area that we're focusing on at this election is going to be around good government um, and transparency and accountability in government Um, but by transparency I'm sorry to interrupt you there like what what type of transparency are you talking about are we talking kind of like penny bright um, sort of sort of side (laughs) Uh, um, I'm not really sure what penny uh, is has been going on about when she's talking about that no, I think I mean when I when I talk about transparency, I'm talking about things like um, accountability around uh, the budget, mm-hmm. right? So we know, for example, that um, the government uses a lot of slate of hand when it comes to publishing its its budget numbers. They tend to make the same announcement multiple times. They'll mm-hmm. often talk about saying that they're investing this massive amount of money in something, and then you find out you know, a month later that actually about 10% of that is new money and, you know, the other 90% was something that they did last year, you know, to, and, and so... Because they're staging it, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the things that... I mean, this is we actually did an announcement with the Labour Party earlier in the year <clears throat> about what we call our budget responsibility rules. One of the components of that was having an independent agency that would hold the executive to account for those kinds of numbers and to say, look, actually, uh, you know, when when you talk about, you know, a, a commitment of money or something like that, that it's really clear that that is actually new money or you haven't just kind of moved things around. Like you haven't, they do this thing with the Department of Conservation where they say they're spending all this new money on conservation. Actually, what they have been doing is they've been cutting core Department of Conservation funding and then transferring it over to the Battle of the Birds or to a you know particular initiative and then saying that they're increasing the total amount of funding. And and so um, it gets very confusing for the public mm-hmm. um, and it's designed to make it look like they're doing more than they are. And we think that that's not good government and, and it's not particularly transparent. And so we wanted to set up an independent agency to shine a light on that kind of behaviour. Interesting. And in terms of the, the inequality piece, what, what types of policies or... Um 
or what types of actions are you looking to take, I guess, around that area? Well, the key, I mean, obviously the key thing that most people are aware of at the moment is the housing crisis, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that we live in a country that is now the least affordable in the world uh, to buy a house with... Is that just Auckland or are we talking, talking uh, throughout the country? No, it's throughout the country, although Auckland is obviously... Uh, I think it's either by one measure it's the most unaffordable and by another um, a measure it's the second most unaffordable city in the world uh, with you know 10 or 11 times income uh, for, for an average house. And so that's really affecting a lot of uh, – well, it's affecting everyone, right? It's not just affecting people on low incomes. It's affecting young professionals, people on middle uh, incomes and so on. And uh, it is driving – uh, uh, um, uh, productivity down. Um, it's making it very difficult, not just for key workers in the public sector, like you know nurses and teachers and firemen and all that kind of stuff, uh, to maintain living in the city, but also businesses are finding it increasingly difficult to recruit uh, because, or or they're finding that actually their existing staff are choosing to relocate to other cities because they just can't afford to live here or if they have or they've been priced out of the city so it's an hour and a half in and an hour and a half back home at the end of the day and they're saying that's just not worth it you know mm-hmm. I, that's not the kind of lifestyle that i that i aspire to and and so that's that's really problematic so what would you do to address that well this is the thing about housing right is that there's that it's there's no silver bullet if there was it would have already been done right yeah that's right it would have been done already and and so um the bit that frustrates me about the housing debate is that people uh generally on the left talk about managing demand you know, mm-hmm. through, you know, tax or, you know, restrictions on um, foreign, um, you know, non-resident foreign buyers and so on. People on the right talk about it purely in terms of supply. Oh, we just need to build more houses. Yep. And both of those are a bit simplistic. You actually have to do both. You have to increase supply. We have a massive shortage. You also have to manage demand because if you just increase supply and you still have the taxation system geared towards massive overinvestment uh, in the property sector, then all those new houses will simply be snapped up um, in the investment uh, by the investment yep. sector and not for people who want to uh, rent it out as a rental as, as opposed to just for capital gain or for people who want to own, own and occupy. And so, um, you know, we are looking at a whole range of things. I think probably at the top of my list is changes to the tax system um, because fundamentally uh, income from capital gain is not taxed at the same rate that other forms of income are taxed at. And we've, and we've set the tax system up in such a way as to incentivize um, investment in property, which is non-productive, as mm-hmm. opposed to the productive parts of the economy. And so you, we're finding that other parts of the economy are a bit anemic in terms of access to capital. And then you've got just this gargantuan sum of money sloshing around in the in the property market, um, which isn't which isn't terribly useful. Mm-hmm. And 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 basically, we're uh, you know just buying and selling existing housing stock to each other, which is uh, not a great way to run an economy. No, and definitely not a way to grow either. So. How would you? Uh, are we talking about a capital gains tax here, or are we talking about? Yeah, that's that's part of it. So I think you know it's funny. I I honestly think I mean capital gains tax is not popular, right? Um, especially because you've got all these people who have gotten into the property market because of the incentives that have been set up there, and then all of a sudden you you're, you're going to try and pull a rug out from under them. But my sense is that the the housing crisis has gotten so bad that even people who are in the investment game can look at that and go, yeah, we can all see that this is actually a house of cards. Um, and I think that the 
the kind of argument uh, has been won for um, bringing capital gains tax. It's just that people feel nervous about it because they think they're going to be stung in particular. And what Mm -hmm. you've got to do is you've got to... I think most people, you know, Kiwis are a pretty fair-minded bunch and you say, look, there is going to be some pain here in in the adjustment, but it's going to be fairly evenly spread. You know, we're not going to go after one group of people in particular, um, you know, and and then people go, okay, that's that's all right. Mm -hmm. As long as you're not kind of singling me out, as long as Bob next door is going through the same thing, then it's, you know, then it's okay. And I, and I think you, if you look at that transition, then it'll be fairly smooth. Mm. I mean, one thing that uh, the, one policy I always try and bang on about, because I think it's fantastic is that, um, coming back to exactly what you were talking about how um, there's a lot of money in the property market Mm. but there's not a lot of money in the investment market you know for for productive assets I I kind of don't see the point then that I can only use my Kiwi Saver because I'm not going to retire anytime soon. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 40 years plus away from retirement. Um, I would love to be able to use my Kiwi Saver uh, investment in productive assets by buying into a small business. You see, because the problem at the moment, and I'm going off topic here, no, and I know no. I'm, I'm yeah. um, uh, I was reading that about a third of New Zealand SMEs are currently owned by um, people who will retire or hit retirement age within the next five years. Yeah. So wouldn't it be fantastic if I could then use that KiwiSaver money to buy one of those businesses that are just going to close anyway if nobody else is going to buy it. And then we had this great generational shift where we have these um, baby boomers educating me how to run this particular business, which I've now bought into. I'm now going to have a stickier relationship with New Zealand yeah. because I'm not going to leave. I've just bought this business. You know, I would love to, instead of having having to buy a house and my incentive is to buy a house because I've got um, subsidies coming in. I think it's about up to $20,000 if I buy with my partner yep. um, through through some of the existing government schemes. But I'd rather have those exact same incentives and buy into a business. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, the fact that you can withdraw money from your KiwiSaver to spend on a house because houses are really expensive. So then you tie up all your capital in a house makes it less likely that you'll start a business because you're too busy trying to make the mortgage meet and you've got that massive commitment there already so yeah you're right the incentives are all skewed uh you know towards one sector in particular um and it's it's the one sector actually that it because you've got huge concentration of ownership um, massive prices in it at the moment that is a primary uh, cause of inequality as well it's not just that it's non-productive it's just it also has all these other you know massive social consequences mm. and, and actually I think this is potentially where you and David Seymour might agree <laughs> where where the because um, housing has become increasingly unaffordable rents have risen yep. price of houses have risen that although um, in nominal terms the ima- incomes have risen the real income once That's you take right. that out has not and in fact it's it's most it, probably decreased. It has gone backwards. It's gone backwards for about 30% of people. Uh, and so there's, you know, it's about a third, a third, a third, right? So people in the top third of, uh, of incomes have generally seen their incomes rise quite a lot above inflation. Um, people in the middle third are kind of holding on by their fingernails. And that's because while their incomes have actually risen a fair amount in the middle third, like you say, accommodation costs, whether it's renting or mortgage, um, as well as other, uh, certain other living costs have increased as well. And then for the bottom third, they've gone backwards because the basket of things that they spend money on, which is 
accommodation primarily, but also utilities, transport, those costs have risen far above what what their incomes have, have risen by. And so in real terms, the bottom 30% of income earners have actually seen their, have seen their um, uh, position worsen over the past decade or so. Mm. And just come to come back to the, to the top priority that you'd mentioned, which was water, and you specifically outlined um, infrastructure in Auckland. Um, I mean, what what types of things are you going to do there? Are you going to call up um, my, uh, call up, I forget his name, from uh, Watercare? <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a funny thing that's there's a bit of a you know Ravine is his name. I've just remembered yeah, yeah. it. The, no, the, the the funny thing is that in in New Zealand, um, to some you know Auckland to to some extent and other parts of the country, uh, we really haven't kept a pace uh, on investment in our water infrastructure, and weirdly, there's a bit of an opportunity there. Because for about 30 years, uh, you know, we haven't, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s when we probably ought to have been upgrading, we didn't. Um, And as a result, we've got this massive infrastructure deficit. Uh, And the funny thing is, is that the intervening 30 years, we've started to understand about the impact of climate change. And we've been able to model that with increasing sophistication. And we know that as sea levels rise, of course, that completely buggers up your um, your uh, water system because it depends on the water table to, to function. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Weirdly, if you've got to spend a lot of money on water infrastructure, which we now do need to do, uh, we can now do so with that information. Ironically, if we had actually kept up with it, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we'd be in a position where that would be, um, if you'll excuse the phrase, a sunk cost um, because the you know the the infrastructure would have been built at a time before we understood mm-hmm. what that rising sea level was going to do. Can I ask you a question which you, probably, you may or may not be able to answer? I, you know, you're the fifth leader of the political of all the political parties in New Zealand that I that I've interviewed. Why is it that nobody else is talking about water infrastructure? It see, it seems to be like something everybody should be talking about. Everybody talks about housing, but why not water infrastructure? Well, I, I think because the Green Party um, prioritises environmental concerns, uh, and we sort of see see it as our role to highlight some of those things. I mean, going out and talking about water infrastructure isn't exactly a vote winner, right? It's not, it's not sexy. No, it's not. It's not sexy. Let's talk about your sewerage. Um, so, uh, you know, but but again, I, I think our our role in Parliament and and in the political kind of arena is to sort of you know push push some of those things um and i know th- i know that when it comes to water infrastructure you know particularly after havelock north last year people have gone from that nostalgic sense that our you know our rivers are not what they ought to be and this isn't the country that i grew up in and you know blah blah blah, blah to something a lot more visceral which is can i trust what's coming out of my tap not to poison me and my family um and that's that's sort of raised the anxiety level and so it is one of those things that we're talking about the other part of it of course is that you know uh, you know mo- most of the when we talk about our waterways in New Zealand most of the damage is is occurring in rural areas but I'm really committed that we don't just kind of be seen to be going after farmers and you know pointing the finger actually you've you've got a million and a half people living uh, in Auckland as well and we do have a problem here as well and and I I I just want us to look at the state of the environment in New Zealand and the state of our water um, as a collective problem, like something that we all have a stake in, something that we all need to get together to fix. And that means that 
you know, we've got to deal with the whole problem, not just bits of it. Mm. And so just before we move on, I've, I just want to clarify that, I, that I've understood you right, I guess, James. Um, so your first priority is, is water and infrastructure. Um, and that's all about ensuring that we have clean water waterways, that we can trust what's coming out of our taps. And um, I think I think the link with young professionals is pretty clear. It's got a, link, a clear link to everybody that, A, we can survive and we can swim in our rivers. Um, the second, I suppose, is that in terms of inequality and housing, and we're going to introduce, or you would introduce um, a capital gains tax, among many other things, um, to try and take some of the demand out while also increasing the supply in the housing market, try and make them more affordable so that, because young professionals typically don't own homes. No. Um, <laughs> well, who can, who can afford one? Yeah, well, particularly in Auckland. Um, though I do read a, a many New Zealand Herald articles about uh, young professionals who have, who, are, who have managed to, through, through some help from the, the appearance or Airbnb. Um, and then lastly, you're talking about transparency um, in government, which is, I suppose is trying to help people who perhaps don't have as much sophistication around their understanding of government and parliament um, and their communications, trying to help those people understand it. Have I, have I got those three things right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you think about those are the th- those are the things that we're going to, that you'll probably see us talk about most during the election campaign. There are, of course, you know, many other things that are, you know, important political priorities. We're going to be talking about climate change, the need to regear the economy over the next 25, 30 years uh, to not just deal with that, but also take advantage of the opportunities that lie mm-hmm. within that. Um, we're, uh, we're going to be talking about the state of our um, forests and our bird life. Uh, you know, there's a biodiversity crisis and, you know, many of our native birds are at risk of extinction. We're going to be talking about, um, you know, uh, New Zealand pulling its weight when it comes to the refugee crisis, um, primarily located in Syria, but also around the world mm. and and so on. So those are, you know, those are all things that, we, that we're going to be on the campaign. Mm. But yeah, the top line uh, top line messages are likely to be around rivers and families uh, and good government. Mm. And the reason we, we ask about priorities is the f- the first episode we ever did on the show was was the political episode, and we had three um, young politicians or people who were involved in politics. Uh, and and the key consensus was um, that that you've got to look at the t- first of all the values of of a party um, because uh, you know there. It, the, the sort of um, understanding around around the room, I guess, was that uh, you're not necessarily going to agree with with most of the priorities of, of a party, but you but you should agree with its values. Yes, and I suppose um, leading into that, then what are, what are the Green Party's values other than the environment? Because that's that's a key one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, first of all, we would say um, that in relation to you, that, you've got to start with an ecological view, right? Because mm-hmm. ultimately, the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. No environment, no economy. So that's just a, a kind of an understanding that we live in a finite world. That's a nice byline, by the way. I've used it before, <laughs> to tell you the truth. You should use it again. It's okay. a good one. I will. Um, uh, and then the second is saying, okay, um, if if you've got resources that are you know, by definition, finite, and you've got a growing population, then the question of how those resources are utilised and how they're shared about kind of becomes pretty important fairly Mm -hmm. quickly. Um, And for as long as we haven't resolved that issue, then you're going to see kind of conflict. So, um, and, 
and and actually what you need to do is make sure that uh, the people who are affected by a decision are involved in it um, and and so we refer to that as appropriate decision making and then the fourth is nonviolence mm-hmm. right and I don't mean nonviolence just as in the absence of physical violence but in that kind of Gandhian approach to social change which is a sense of uh, respecting those with whom we don't necessarily share values you know engaging in a dialogue with people who we would regard as our opponents uh, and and to and to acknowledge their dignity and, and and to be involved on on that kind of basis and that is the most constructive approach towards solving these kind of big uh, hairy hairy problems uh, I think that you know um, essentially there are three com- three components that I talk about one is the environment um, one is equality uh, and the other is the economy so uh, th- those are the kind of that's the departure point. And it's like the three legs of a stool. Mm. If you take one of those legs away, the stool falls over, right? You know, and, and instead of being called the Greens, you could almost call yourselves the Ease then, the, <laughs> what was it, the Environment, Economy and, and Equality. And, and look, one of, the, one of my favorite things to do in, in these podcasts um, is that I'm so sick of um, – of Parliament being so negative, mm-hmm. um, and, you're sick and, of it. <laughs> well, I'm sure you sure you are as well. And so, instead of dirty politics, we, we've started this thing called clean politics, uh, which I'm I'm sure you appreciate. Yeah. So here on my game of fortune wheel, I have every uh, party. Uh, except Greens, mm-hmm. that's currently in Parliament. And uh, what what I'll do is I'll spin this wheel, and whoever comes up, I'd like you to say something, something nice. Uh, something nice, a policy you like, yeah. a person you yeah. like, yeah. Um, something you like about the party, just something. Sure. <laughs> New Zealand first. Deep and take a breath. Um, okay, so one of the things that uh, we would say about... Uh, the property market, actually, um, is that one, when you've got a compressed market like we've got at the moment, when you have uh, the ability for um, offshore um, people to buy into that, then you can have these ma- massive, re- massive distortionary impact on prices. So the way that I see it is like if you can visualize an orange and then you poke a straw into that orange and then you attach a fire hose to the end of the straw, what's going to happen to the orange? It's going to explode. Precisely. And let's talk about Auckland property prices. So it's a, it's, I'm not saying, you know, th- there's a small number of transactions. It's only about 4 to 5% of transactions go to um, non-resident foreign buyers. But there is essentially a, an inf- effectively, to all intents, purposes an infinite pile of cash sitting behind them because you've seen massive growth in the middle classes uh, in Russia, India, China, huge growth uh, in uh, the United States and so on. Um, that's all looking for a safe place to park. And so you're seeing the same trend in Auckland as you are in Vancouver or in London or in Paris or in Sydney uh, or in a number of other uh, cities around the world. Um, and so one thing um, that, that you know we say is that you've got to restrict that. New Zealand First um, have got a very similar approach to that. Um, you know, a lot of people will say uh, that they tend to couch that in a sort of a xenophobic language. Um, and, you know, I've often taken issue with the way that they express things. But there's a policy area that I think actually you've got some commonality there mm-hmm. when you think through the actual economics of it rather than the kind of the other stuff around it that you say there's got to be some common some common cause. You know, people say the same about Trump in terms of policy couched in and couched in uh, rhetoric. Yeah, except I don't think he has policy. I think he's only got rhetoric. No, that's probably a fair actually, point as well. Yeah, I, and 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 actually, if you, I don't, and I think that the policy that he's got 
isn't based on any here I am being negative um, that's no, alright it's alright but, but it's not it's not based on any kind of rational analysis of, of the facts right I mean I'm, I'm a big believer in evidence based policy uh, where you get the best information that you can and even if it's uncomfortable right and you say gee I'm like that doesn't feel quite right to me then you know you sort of say well actually but the evidence is pointing that there's something there that we ought to explore and I, I just cannot see any policy that he's brought, brought in that has got any basis in fact or evidence. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And um, just to clarify, we're talking about uh, Trump, not Peters there. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, actually, I mean, I, I get on really well with a number of his MPs, right? Is um, that right? Yeah. Tracy Martin um, is, I think, really solid, especially in the field of education. She's been one of those voices in Parliament around, uh, you know, school reform and good public education Um I think she's a tenacious um, person with a really solid value set. Fletcher Tabuto, I get on very well with. Um, he's brought some much needed kind of economic uh, and business thinking to their caucus. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, that's the thing about any political party, right? There's, and I've got friends right across the house in every political party. And, and I think as long as you uh, say, although we're probably going to disagree and the political system is set up in such a way to mitigate against us working together, that actually if you were to sit down and say, well, let's just work through the evidence here, that the vast majority of people, not everyone, but the vast majority of people are pretty reasonable. Fantastic. It's good to hear that they, that our elected leaders are relatively reasonable. <laughs> yeah, I know. Look, here's the thing. Mostly what we see on television is question time. Mm-hmm. And that is rubbish, right? Question time is... is um, bad political theatre um, that serves very little real democratic purpose these days um, and it's the one bit that everybody gets to see and it resembles the rest of the political process virtually not at all uh, and if you could see what goes on in select committees or you know some of the other kind of parts of the process even some of the debates and some of the legislation not all of it, some of it's pretty low, low quality, th- then you kind of see a different side of it to, to what you see in question time. Mm. Because I can imagine that 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 nobody ever wanted to to watch a, however however long a select committee lasts for several several no, many hours. No, I they are they are they are actually broadcast on the Parliament website. Um, you know that they they're live streamed. But but yeah, I mean I think most sane people um, wouldn't you know spend their spare time doing that if if they had any spare time to do that. But I do think you know that there's a lot that goes on that you don't see. Mm. Well, I've got two last questions for you, and they're the same ones that I, that I ask everybody who comes in here. Um, the first is that imagine that you've got got a last uh, woman w- driving along the motorway, um, a guy in a gym listening to this podcast, and they're thinking, "Why should I vote for the Greens?" What would you say to them? So I would say that uh, you should give your vote to the Green Party because our orientation um, and our commitment actually is to solving the big hard problems that a lot of the other political parties tend to avoid, right? So the challenge of how do we re-gear our economy so that we uh, so that it's fit for um, dealing with climate change, but not just in terms of like as a problem, but as an opportunity, Right, because there are things going on in energy and transport and agriculture that are tremendously exciting, and we could be leading the world in this stuff. You know, if we were to really focus on taking a leadership position, creating a sustainable, smart green economy that works for everyone, that then becomes IP that we can sell to the rest of the world. And at the moment, I'm really worried that we are letting 
that opportunity pass us by um, and that there are other countries out there that are seizing it with both hands. And so we're missing out on, on I think, an extraordinary opportunity. Um, and, and our commitment is, is, even if it's a hard problem, that we will deal with it um, and we will have the tough conversations that we need to have and we'll engage um, you know, with the key stakeholders in society and make sure that we actually deal with those challenges. And my last one, which is my favourite question, is James Shaw, what is your big vision for New Zealand? My vision for New Zealand is that uh, we are the first country in the world to have a truly sustainable economy um, and that we show the rest of the world how it's done uh, and that that's how we make our way in the world. It is actually as simple as that. And I think that that is right there for the taking. Uh, it's, you know, it's two or three decades of hard work in the transition, but it's worth it. Fantastic, James Shaw. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for listening to the New Zealand Young Professionals podcast. As mentioned, I am your host, Ed McKnight. If you want to track me down personally, my email is ed at edmcknight.com. If you've enjoyed listening to the show today, uh, check us out at nzyoungprofessionalspodcast.com or hit subscribe in your favourite podcast listening app. Until next time. The New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, hosted by Ed McKnight and brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand.